You know what happens when you flip a light switch? How many people, dollars, and computers are involved to charge your smartphone? Do you understand the policy implications, political landmines, and local issues as we transition to clean energy? Well, we're here to answer those questions and more. Welcome to No Power. Hosted by informed industry experts Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti, No Power is all about demystifying the entire energy industry without getting into the politics, getting you more involved in the discussion, and empowering you with knowledge to make an intelligent choice today and the future. Head on over to nopowershow.com or wherever you get your podcasts so you can listen and subscribe and never miss an episode. And now, here are your hosts, Noha and Michael. Hi, everybody. I'm very excited for you to listen to today's podcast. Today, we're interviewing a good friend of mine, Abe Silverman. He is at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. He is their Director of Non-Technical Barriers to the Clean Energy Transition, which is probably the longest title of anybody we're going to interview, I think, on our podcast. But they're doing some really interesting work in the space. Columbia actually has multiple tracks where they're looking at various different technologies in the space, at market design issues, at basically what's going to happen to our energy needs over the next three or four decades. What should our goals be, what's realistic and what's not. And he has a lot of really great perspective. He was also at the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities for some time. So really understands the state and the federal dynamics in the space. And I'm really excited for this one. Yeah, me too, Noha, and definitely the longest title of anyone that I think we're going to have on the show here. Totally concur. Abe is terrific. While he was at the Board of Public Utilities in New Jersey, he was one of the internal folks that spearheaded New Jersey's efforts to both procure offshore wind resources, but also take one of the most meaningful steps in terms of transmission development, actually beginning the process to build a transmission grid in the ocean to plug these machines into. So really innovative there. And one of the things that I love about Abe is because he has this deep private sector experience, the public policy and government experience, and now sort of the think tank role that he's in now, he speaks a lot of different languages. You can imagine the same topic in any of those audiences needs to be communicated differently. And that's one of the things that Abe is really great at, being able to break these things down and to communicate them in their constituent parts to us and to folks like you that are interested in these topics. So super excited. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Abe and hope you enjoyed the show. So Abe, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you. The title is actually even a little bit worse than that because it's the Non-Technical Barriers to the Clean Energy Transition Initiative in the Center for Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. So you can, now that we've taken up the entire hour of the time. (laughs) How did you guys even come up with that? It's a great question. A lot of what we talk about in the clean energy transition are these grandiose 2050 goals to get to net zero. And that requires a lot of technological innovation, and it requires a lot of fundamentally rethinking our energy mix. But we also have to get from where we are today to 2030, and then from 2030 to 2050. So a lot of the focus that I've been working on is identifying the non-technical pieces of this clean energy transition that actually get us back on track for our clean energy goals. I won't say it's easy, but we don't need to invent whole new kinds of technologies. We don't need a miracle source of energy. We just kind of need to get there and start deploying the stuff we already have at scale. And that'll get us a lot of the way towards our clean energy goals. So really in that two to five year focus where we're looking at things that don't require major technological breakthroughs, that's what I'm focused on in the new program. I love it. So let's take a step back and talk about 
how you got here. Let's talk a little bit about your career. Like talk a little bit about your FERC experience. You spent some time at NRG and then you went to the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities. Give us a little bit of flavor of those experiences and how they kind of culminated to where you are today. And just to give some hope to all the struggling students out there, I came out of law school without a real clear idea of what I wanted to do and not a stellar academic record. So I actually applied to a bunch of different places in D.C. after clerking for a year. And there was this place called the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. I had no idea what they did. I said I wanted to do environmental law during my interview. And Cindy Marlette, who was the general counsel at the time, hired me anyway. And I don't know whether they were desperate or what, but stuck me down into markets, tariffs, and rates, which at the time was about as far from clean energy and environmental law as you could possibly get. And so I was there for three or four years, the beginning of the 2000s, when we really started making this transition. And the issues in the energy sector and the issues in the environmental sector merged together and kind of became one significant issue where you can't talk about today about environmental policy without also talking about energy. And you can't talk about energy without talking about environmental policy. So I spent three or four years at FERC, happened to be very lucky that it was during some of the time when the Energy Policy Act of 2005 was passed. So we were doing a lot of large-scale rulemakings. I worked on interconnection rulemaking when I was at FERC. So for any of your audience who's heard of Order 2023, the predecessor to that 20 years ago was Order 2003. And at that time, we thought we'd fix the interconnection problems. Of course, we were very, very wrong. So I left FERC, went to a law firm for a couple of years. In fact, you know how we worked together briefly at the law firm and then spent a couple of years doing that, working on a lot of different kinds of clients, including financial marketer clients and generator clients and hydropower clients and all sorts of other things. And then got the opportunity to go to this company called NRG in 2008. And so I moved up to New Jersey and took this job with this company that was really kind of a microcosm of the clean energy transition that we're seeing now, because it was a company that had a lot of generating assets, mostly coal, some natural gas, a fair amount of oil, a little bit of nuclear, but had real aspirations for becoming a 21st century clean energy company. And so the goal at NRG was really to manage the fossil fuel fleet to maximize revenues over the short term, while also growing a totally new business, a clean energy business, as well as a retail-focused business. And, you know, the question was always, would we be able to increase the green revenue fast enough to account for the fossil revenue falling over time? And we all recognized that that had to happen if the company was going to have a long-term future. And it also sort of tracked with where we as a nation are going. I like to think at NRG, we were probably about a decade ahead of time. But really, it's a great analogy for what we're trying to do with our struggling energy communities today as we try to transition off of fossil fuels and move them to a green energy economy. So I was at NRG for about a decade running regulatory affairs and in the legal department, and then had the opportunity to come into the Murphy administration in New Jersey. And in 2019, I left NRG and went to work down in lovely downtown Trenton, New Jersey, working with the Board of Public Utilities, which is the public service commission for New Jersey. And we got there at a time when we had just left the former governor, Chris Christie had left office, and we had Governor Phil Murphy coming in. And this was a 180 degree shift in clean energy policy, where all of a sudden Governor Murphy came in, wanted to be one of the greenest governors in America, and started doing a ton of investment 
and thinking about how do we actually do the clean energy transition here in New Jersey. As it was wonderful to be in with a bunch of really dedicated public servants who were looking at the promise of what the clean energy economy could do, both in terms of environmental protection, but also in terms of jobs and economic benefits. And you know, nowhere was that more clear than in the governor's offshore wind ambitions. So we were coming in into an agency that I think it's fair to say had largely been allowed to atrophy during the prior administration. It's we really had to build it out. And there was a, just a great team that was coming in, a small but great team who was coming in and working with a lot of the people, the career folks there who were also wonderful, to really drive the clean energy economy. And to all the on-the-ground stuff, dare I say, the non-technical barriers to getting New Jersey's economy leaner and greener. And so it was really a great four years at BPU. And then honestly, I had this opportunity to come to Columbia, where effectively, you know, I'm doing exactly the same thing, except now on a national scale and spending a lot of time talking to folks like you all and to state regulators in particular, talking about how do we actually take our aspirations for a 2050 net zero economy? What do we need to do today to put the pieces into place so that we can actually get there? Yeah, it's an amazing background, Abe. I mean, one of the things that always stands out to me about your background and your resume here is that ability to sort of bring those multiple different perspectives to the table, particularly having just such a long tenure with NRG and to bring that commercial experience. So I've known Abe for a long time back when I worked at the Board of Public Utilities many moons before he got there. And I think it's fair to say in a lot of government agencies, whether it's on the federal side or state side, you have a lot of folks that are very policy focused, maybe their career government folks, very smart, very knowledgeable in the space, but haven't necessarily been on the private sector, like to get that understanding of kind of what makes projects like these fly. Did you find that being able to bring that perspective was helpful for you in the role? Yeah, I do. I think having been responsible for deploying capital and then going into the state and thinking about the programs and policies from the perspective of someone who actually was going to potentially invest billions of dollars on the program that's being created. And I will just say, for anybody out there who's feeling unfulfilled or unloved in their current private sector job, I'll tell you, you should quit your job and go work for a state commission because you will have no greater opportunity during your career to actually come in and make a difference. And there's a lot of really wonderful people in state government, but there were, I think, two or three people with significant private sector experience in the whole agency, like in the energy sector, that is. And so you have the opportunity to go and work and do your state service for a few years, and you really make an immediate impact because you can look at a set of regulations or a contract or program guidance and immediately say, okay, this is not going to work. This is not a financeable contract. And even if you don't know, you know to ask the question, like you and your clients, when you came in and talked to us, you know, we would ask you, hey, does this work? Fundamentally, is this a financeable kind of arrangement? And that sort of perspective and understanding the how it's going to affect financing costs and the trade-offs between certainty and penalty structures and everything else is really critical. So for anybody out there looking for that career change, go into state government. You'll never regret it. You'll work incredibly hard for very, very little pay, but the psychic <laughs> rewards are really high. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I give a ton of credit to BPU for putting me in the position to have the career that I have here. And I say that to folks like I get calls, for example, from my alma mater law school asking me, well, how do you get into the energy industry? What are the right steps to take? I give them the same advice, Abe. I'm like a state agency or a federal agency, fantastic places. You get incredible experience that you probably would get for 
I don't know, 10 years in the private sector. So, and it's true. You really do. You're almost the tip of the spear in the way, right? You do literally get to make a difference. And I mean, like you, Abe, get to make a difference, right? And some of the policies that you advance there. I did want to ask you too, is as you're thinking about it, sort of what you were doing at PPU and you're saying kind of you're doing basically the same thing now, just maybe on a broader scale than just one state, talking about non-technical barriers, what are non-technical barriers to the clean energy transition? Yeah, we spent a lot of time thinking about that. Here's the definition I've come up with. It's policies and regulations that delay or frustrate achievement of a just, reliable, affordable, and expeditious transition to a clean energy economy. Okay, so what does that actually mean? We're not going to go out there and invent any new widgets, but we certainly can talk about the siting and permitting rules that allow people to deploy those widgets. We can talk about the market rules, and we can talk about things like transmission planning that are necessary for every other piece of the clean energy transition. And if we don't have a place to put stuff, if we don't have social license and agreement from society that we can build new infrastructure, we're never going to get there. And so it's all about putting those pieces together and sort of identifying where are the holdups. Because we've all seen those crazy flow diagrams where there's like 97 different steps to build a new transmission facility. Which of those are actually really important and which of those are kind of, you know, and eh, nice to haves? And how do we think about that? And how do you talk to regulators, both at the federal and state level? Actually, one of the reasons I really enjoy the Center on Global Energy Policy is the fact that it was founded by a bunch of ex, mostly Obama administration officials who really talked about sitting in government and not having anybody they could turn to for trustworthy, non-advocacy kind of advice. And, you know, we certainly saw this in New Jersey. A number of people came in. They always make very convincing arguments. But at the end of the day, the answer to the clean energy transition is whatever product they happen to be selling that day. <laughs> sure. Which is great. And, you know, and some of them are going to be right. But the ability to actually talk to educators and researchers and people doing scholarship on these factors, but trying to get that scholarship and then translating it into something that's actually useful for real government policymaking, I think is just really an exciting opportunity. So what do you think is the biggest non-technical barrier for the transition? You talked about a couple of factors here. What's the primary focus right now at the center? Well, the center is much broader, but for my program, we're really focused on three different things. So you got to look at siting and permitting and where we can put new energy infrastructure facilities. And we have to talk about the social license and convert the NIMBYs into the YIMBYs. We'll have people actually advocate for this infrastructure and talk about how important it is to the clean energy transition. So that siting and permitting, where do we put stuff? Social license is absolutely one pillar of what we're working on. The second is talking about the transmission grid and the distribution grid, but that physical linear infrastructure that we need so much of on the electric side. It's really very tightly coordinated with that siting and permitting question, but you get things like interconnection. Interconnection is complicated. It involves a lot of technical stuff, but at the end of the day, it's a policy decision about how many resources we put in to the transmission grid in order to ease the interconnection process. And right now we have a five-year tax on any new project coming in and trying to connect to the grid. I feel like over the last six to nine months, this issue has really taken hold in the, I won't say the public imagination, but at least in sort of the energy sphere. And it's a great example of a place where our policies are not adequate to the clean energy future that I think we all want. So how do we talk about getting the transmission grid ready? How do we talk about pre-building transmission infrastructure for things like offshore wind? How do we talk about 
doing it in a way that makes interconnection actually feasible in a time scale that's relevant. So that's the second pillar. And then the third one really is equity and affordability. And one of the things that we saw this very clearly in New Jersey, and I know it's something that a lot of us actually think about, we have to do this clean energy transition at a price that consumers can afford. Because if it's not affordable, it won't happen. And it'll become the biggest governor on our ability to actually move forward. And at the same time, we really need to look at the impact on people with the lowest means in our society. Because if we start decarbonizing and our bills go up, we're making a lot of new investments that are good over the long term and are helping our environment, but it's raising prices for low-income customers to a point where energy poverty is just skyrocketing. That's not good either. And we need to use this transition as the opportunity to come in and really talk about some of those energy poverty issues. And this gets us into how we design our electricity markets. And coming back to one of the things that we always saw any state regulator or any federal regulator uh, sees is somebody comes in shilling for a particular technology and they're like, this has enormous carbon benefits. And I'm like, yep, what's it cost? And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. Look at the carbon benefits. And I'm like, I'm looking at the carbon benefits. How much does it cost? And so we have to use our wholesale markets. We have to use competition. We have to be smart about the technology mix that we're picking so we don't end up with a clean system that's just unaffordable for anybody but the ultra rich. Like that's not success. So when we think about it, you got the siting and permitting, you got the transmission, and then you need to keep it affordable and just. So obviously as a markets person, I'm loving your message. But what I'm curious about is, you know, there was a lot of pushback when New Jersey took on its offshore wind initiative about affordability. Do you think being part of the PJM market helped you suss that out a little bit? Did it make it a more competitive, more markets-friendly structure because you already had the market structure? You really can't do huge renewable projects unless you are part of a regional grid. California may be big enough by itself, but for those of us smaller states, you really need to be able to take power and give power to your neighbors in a seamless manner. So the PGM market actually is one of the biggest drivers of cost savings that we have in New Jersey. We estimated it saved us several billions of dollars a year by being part of PJM because you get these economies of scale. And it's particularly true when you're thinking about clean energy resources. So yeah, so affordability for offshore wind is a major, major concern. And when you think about building a new industry like that, this is kind of where I love the way energy and politics and good government actually kind of intersect. Because you need to look not only at the bill impacts to customers, but you also need to look at the tax revenues and the jobs that you're bringing into the state. And one of the things I really enjoyed about working for the state was you got to take into account all these various factors that can't really be subsumed within a market balance sheet, but actually talk about how are we getting our union brothers and sisters to work? How are we thinking about building out the supply chain and making these investments, while at the same time trying to do it as affordably as you possibly can. And this is where I was really excited about some of the steps that we took in New Jersey to try to reduce the price of offshore wind. Things like building out the transmission system in advance, reducing the regulatory risk for our developers so that they can come in and really give us their rock bottom prices. Now, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that a lot of offshore wind is struggling right now. And I really worry, you know, because I see a lot of requests to renegotiate contracts, to bring additional resources to the table. And that's going to be a real problem. 
And I personally spend a lot of time wondering, how is it going to go if this first generation of offshore wind projects blows through their budget the same way that, say, Vogel did down in Georgia? Yeah. And for our listeners, Vogel's a giant nuclear reactor that was being built down in the southeastern portion of the United States. And I don't remember how many billions of dollars it was over budget at the end of the project, but I believe it was like eight or nine billion, something thereabout. It was an enormous number. And ultimately, it was a huge commitment by ratepayers to a project that was very, very expensive. I'm afraid it was even more than that. Was it more than that, Abe? Yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. It was, you know, 2x over budget. You know, it's a real challenge. But when states are making these investments in clean energy resources, what do we do if the developers walk away from contracts? And that has really profound implications for our clean energy targets. It has really profound implications for offshore wind supply chain. And so how you deal with the really tragic events in Ukraine and the fact that we're seeing crazy levels of inflation and the fact that steel prices have gone up. It's going to be a really complicated decision for policymakers to look and say, how do we deal with this? Do we rebid these contracts? Do we come in with some additional level of support? Are there blended extends that we can do where the state gets additional benefits out of the contract in exchange for higher prices up front? But at some point, state regulators are going to have to decide whether this is long-term feasible if they can't enter into contracts that they know that the offshore wind developers will be able to honor. And that's a real challenge. Without a doubt, and just for a little bit of background for folks out there, there's only one operating wind farm in the United States today. It's off of the coast of Block Island, which is a small little island, sort of sits off of the very eastern edge of Long Island. And it's really a demonstration project. It's very small. Now, the second and the first utility scale, sort of very large wind farm, is under construction off of the coast of Massachusetts now. But for as much activity as we see with offshore wind, it really is very much a nascent industry, right? It's mature in places like Europe and in some Asian countries, but here we're at the very beginnings. And I think you're right, Abe, you always want to see a new industry or an industry that is coming on shore here for the first time succeed out of the gate, right? It sets up for confidence into the future. And there are definitely some headwinds right now for some of those existing resources. I want to key in on something that you said there, because I think it's an important consideration to tease out the difference between the things that markets do really well, or at least they do really well right now, versus some of the other sort of value attributes you talked about. And so in very simple terms, what PJM does is it takes all of the generators in its territory, which is huge. It spans all the way from Michigan to the sort of North Carolina, Virginia border, and then all the way east to the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York border. There's about 1,500 power plants within that territory. They all submit offers to sell their energy to PJM. PGM looks at what demand is, and it stacks all those offers up from the lowest cost to the highest until it meets demand, right? And then it pays whatever that marginal clearing price was to all of the other generators that got commitments. The idea is if you price energy based on that offer where supply and demand meets, everybody below that should cover their costs if they offered rationally. It also creates a huge incentive for you to offer as low of a price as possible so you're the most competitive and you get commitments. That ends up, as Abe was saying, in a very efficient outcome from a pricing perspective, but there's lots of other things that have value that aren't just necessarily the cost of the electrons that come out of a facility. And many of the things, for example, that New Jersey was very interested in were, say, the supply chain, right? And as we were saying a second ago, you're imagining 
building literally a, a new industry here. Well, you got to build stuff like turbines, right? You got to build things like the pedestals for those turbines to sit on. You got to build the boats to drag that stuff out into the ocean. And a lot of these states were competing over the tax base and the jobs and those types of, I'll call them externalities from a market perspective that PGM doesn't do as good of a job capturing, but are very meaningful for the state here. So how did you guys kind of think about that, Abe? Like, how did you put like a relative balance between the cost of the energy versus all of these other things that were benefits that you were trying to capture for the state. We actually put out a rubric, a grading rubric, when we had our solicitations. And you can actually go and see. I'm not going to remember exactly what the numbers were, but something like 50% of the grade was based on price. And then 25% was based on jobs. And you know another 15% was on environmental externalities. And of course, I'm going to add up to more than 100% here in a second. But so you could actually see it. We actually had meetings and sat around and talked about what are the relative weightings that we want to give to these things. And certainly ability to actually come through. How advanced were the projects? How does their interconnection scheme look? Are these feasible? Can they meet their deadlines? I mean, these were all things that were taken into consideration. And of course, the applications here are thousands of pages long at the end of it. And, you know, we're looking at all sorts of analysis. Mike, I think your firm was involved in some of those. Yes, we were. But we go through and grade them. It was good practice for being a professor, you know, is grading those papers. <laughs> but, you know, I just want to come back to one other thought, too, which is nuclear during the 60s and 70s was really having a heyday. And then you had Three Mile Island. And all of a sudden, in the early 1980s, the United States just forgot how to build nuclear at a price that was affordable. And that led to, what, 20 plus years of no new nuclear in this country. And so, you know, I think we really need to be very careful that we don't end up pricing ourselves right out of the market, showing that you can't deliver on time and on budget because regulators have a long memory. And if we're not able to get this stuff, if we're not able to put things back on track, we could have another moment like that. And that would be a real tragedy. Do you think we don't give things enough runway? Because the sound bites are so easy in this political discussion, even though we have to have some level of trial and error. These markets are not perfect. And there are ways to mitigate some of that risk, but they are also imperfect. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And you both are, I know, major proponents of markets. One of the things that competitive markets let us do is we can go out there and say, okay, industry, here's a very transparent price of power from PJM. How much extra do you need to make that power solar power or wind power or whatever else? And so, you know, we were actually trying to, and I think this is where you can sort of morph from research and development, which I think you were totally uncertain when you do an R&D project, what the costs are going to come out in. But when we talk about my program in particular and my focus, and I think a lot of what New Jersey was trying to do is even though these projects are complicated, offshore wind is certainly complicated, building big solar farms is complicated, though probably not as complicated as offshore wind, they're fundamentally solved problems. It's not like building a house, right? It's like building a skyscraper, but we know how to build skyscrapers. We've done that before. And all the technologies that we were looking at were actually fairly mature technologies when you sort of look over the global scale. And so a lot of what we were trying to do was really accelerate the deployment of stuff that we as a society already know how to do. And I think that's where the competitive piece of this is so important because you could go out and identify the specs and the parameters of what you're looking for, and then you put it out for bid, right? It's exactly the same as if you were remodeling your kitchen. So then what do you do? You know, you still have to follow through on those contracts and actually make them happen. 
and the more that you can reduce risk and provide certainty and clarity to the industry, they're going to come in and give you their best possible price. And so there does have to be that sort of symbiotic relationship between the regulator and the regulated. Yeah. And it's interesting because Mike and I have actually been talking about this investability in these markets, making sure we're getting really good price signals so that folks can feel comfortable taking those risks in innovating. And certainly the Inflation Reduction Act helped with that, but we're also definitely exploring some changes in PJM and in other markets to increase that investability because we're realizing the price signals aren't quite there, which is why you're saying offshore wind is really struggling. I think it's a very interesting time where, and that's why I asked the runway question, because the markets are imperfect and we just need more time and space to kind of get that pricing correct. Yeah. And I and I do have a lot of sympathy for developers who sort of look at, especially the current PJM structure and are less interested in investing in PJM. The interconnection queue, again, perfect example. When it's a five-year uncertain runway to even get your project studied, that hampers investment. And you either have to include a much higher risk premium or you go and take your development dollars and go elsewhere. I also do worry a little bit that some of the constant rewrites of the PJM market rules make it difficult for people to make long-term investments. Now, on the other hand, we have something like, what's the current number, Mike? 250,000, 300,000 megawatts of new generation that want to come into this market. So it's not scaring people away that much, but we do have to keep an eye on that. And that investability thing is absolutely critical. And honestly, it's one of the things that I'm really excited about with my colleagues at Columbia is we have a lot of folks who have really impressive resumes who have been making investment decisions in industry for a long time and investment bankers. And so a lot of what we talk about is sort of the amalgam of regulatory policy and investability. And when we make recommendations or talk to policymakers, we try to bring all those perspectives in and really come in with a cohesive set of recommendations that we think will actually work. And that is a huge value add, right? Because to your earlier point, offshore wind's new here, but it's not new other places, right? Orsted, for example, which is the largest owner, operator, developer of offshore wind on the planet, they built their first offshore wind farm in 1991, right? They actually decommissioned the thing before 2020. I believe it was 2017 or 2018 after like 25 years of operation. So it's been around long enough that not only did that asset get done, they've already dismantled it and moved on to newer, bigger, and better things. And so if you have folks that are familiar with how people invest in these types of technologies and other places, you can learn from their successes, you can learn from their mistakes, you can take some of those policies here, and you can kind of pick through and you can kind of curate, right, the components of these that you think are sort of the necessary features of a paradigm that breaks down those non-technical barriers. I want to talk about one of the steps that you took at your prior role in New Jersey there to try and break down some of those interconnection barriers. And that's New Jersey's efforts to build offshore wind enabling transmission infrastructure out into the ocean. Um, You talked a lot about generator interconnection queues is something that I heard about on our podcast before. Today, the main or the primary model is generators get into a queue, a place like PJM studies them and tells them what upgrades are necessary to plug that machine in reliably. Essentially, what they're trying to do is put the grid into a steady state, right? To say, well, add your generator and then we'll kind of have a do no harm kind of a policy. In one sense, that provides open access that it allows folks to plug into the grid. It's also theoretically going to provide an incentive to say, if Mike's project has a huge interconnection cost number, but no Haas doesn't, people should invest in hers, not mine. Not as easy to say in a place like New Jersey, where there's relatively few places to plug in stuff like offshore wind, that you get that right balance of incentives and things. And you guys chose a different approach there. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I love to. So one of the things we recognized is that there are massive economies of scale in transmission planning. If you're running a diner, you don't just make coffee and pastries as customers come into your diner in the morning. Because when the morning rush comes in, you have a hundred of them sitting there. You have a bunch of cups of coffee in the carafe ready to go. Yet most of the transmission planning and interconnection process is they sort of start working on it when you walk in the door. And even when you have a huge morning rush, so we end up with massive delays. And so one of the things that we really talked about in New Jersey was how do we reduce the timeline for building out the transmission necessary to connect the new generation? How do we reduce the environmental footprint? And also, you know, equally important, how do we reduce the price? So New Jersey actually said to all the developers in the world, hey, come to New Jersey, tell us how much it would cost to build a transmission facility necessary to get offshore wind delivered to customers on the grid. And we really divided this up into effectively three different pieces. One of the things that's underappreciated with offshore wind is that often the biggest barrier to getting offshore wind connected to the grid is the onshore portion of the grid and what you have to do to build the facilities onshore. So we asked, hey, listen, here are, and you know, we did a lot of very extensive modeling with our colleagues at PJM, and we identified a whole bunch of transmission upgrades, upgrades to the bulk electric system that were going to have to happen. So we put those out for bid. We said, okay, transmission developers, utilities, really any qualified entity, come to us with your ideas about how to alleviate these problems and give us your best price and do it for the onshore piece, do it for the shore crossing piece, and then even potentially do it for an offshore wind backbone. Because I think a lot of us have this dream that someday we'll have a Florida to Maine offshore wind superhighway. This is something I talk about a lot because, you know, it really makes sense that if we have to build out, you know, if we're really expecting to get 50 or more gigawatts of new offshore wind off the coast of the eastern United States, we might as well go ahead and plan for that and take advantage of the economies of scale. So we actually put those out for bid. We got wonderful proposals from a whole bunch of different developers. And then New Jersey actually selected a series of upgrades to the existing grid. They mostly focused on the onshore piece in the end that were really designed to drive down costs and increase the certainty and the speed and reduce the environmental footprint of those upgrades. So, you know, I think the board concluded that it was going to save somewhere around $900 million to have gone through that process and to have selected upgrades that made sense. And so it was, a, I think, a you know, hugely successful effort. And I think we all, you know, as people who sort of look to how are we going to do this whole transmission grid thing that we all agree that we needs to happen in order to decarbonize the economy, and by the way, to improve reliability of the macro grid and to reduce costs to consumers, we need to do huge investment in the transmission system. And coming back to my diner analogy, it doesn't make any sense if we're just sitting there having customers come in and then starting a planning process. We really should be getting ready and thinking about that morning rush. And here we have the IRA is the morning rush. We have more capital coming in through largely spurred on by the IRA, as well as corporate demand for clean energy and state policies. We have all this demand and our transmission system is kind of, you know, sitting there in the back trying to bake croissants as customers are coming in and that's just never going to work. <laughs> You know, as I trade FTRs, I'm really going to think about the transmission system baking croissants. Right? I love this. <laughs> I can't wait for our listeners to hear this. <laughs> I do want to go back to something you said along these lines, which is how do we turn the NIMBYs into YIMBYs? 
We have a lot of folks that are very concerned about the environment and environmental justice and doing this in a responsible and cost-effective way. And then PGM will try to advocate for building large transmission lines. They'll be very involved in all these different state proceedings, and they really struggle to get buy-in to actually get stuff done and paid for. Tell me a little bit about the work you guys are doing at Columbia on that process. This is such an interesting question. And we see so much political division on every possible issue in the United States right now. I think we all recognize that. You can take your pick of hot button political issue. And unfortunately, I think clean energy and transmission has largely gotten caught up in sort of those larger macro political debates. I'm not going to be the one to launch a campaign and tell people that they should be supporting clean energy or anything else. But I think we can talk about and reframe the discussion a little bit. Yes, the carbon benefits are very important. But you know what else is important? More transmission is a more reliable grid for everybody. And there's enormous savings associated with making a more reliable grid. And you know what else it does? It enables lower prices. Almost every transmission investment that we look at at least pays for itself, if not more than that, over the life of the transmission facility. So there's cost savings. There's reliability benefits. And one of the things, you know, what could be more American than energy abundance and energy self-sufficiency driven through investment in clean energy. I mean, this is a country that's never been shy about using its natural resources to achieve energy independence. And now we have technology, the wind farms, the solar panels, everything else to really reduce our dependence on fossil fuel. It's cheaper and it is very super American. And so I love it that the IRA is coming in and bringing manufacturing back to the United States, but also really prevents this opportunity for us to talk about transmission and clean energy generation as a jobs engine, as a financial saving engine for customers, and as a way of really managing the reliability of the grid. I love what like MISO did. They had this long-range transmission plan, and I'm so sorry for your listeners who aren't steeped in this, but in 2012, a bunch of MISO states got together and recognized, hey, listen, Our electric grid is not ready for the coming transition. It's not ready for the retirement of a bunch of fossil units. It's not ready to interconnect the incredibly wind-rich resources in that footprint. And remember, MISO's big. At that point, it went from basically Arkansas up to Canada. Now it includes Louisiana as well. But this is a big area, mostly red states, though not entirely, with massive clean energy potential. So a bunch of the MISO states got together and said, okay, let's actually plan for this grid of the future. Let's talk about what we can do on a voluntary basis that's good for everybody. So they identified a bunch of transmission projects where the costs and the benefits were roughly proportional between each of the states. And they came together and they filed it at FERC and it got improved. And I think now 18 of the 19 transmission projects that were planned for back in 2012 are now operational. And it worked so well that MISO is doing round two. So like that is a model where hopefully we can identify benefits and savings for basically everybody in the footprint that largely is, is entirely independent of how you think about carbon or climate change. And I loved the MISO process because there's this iconic waterfall chart. Many of your listeners probably won't have seen it. For those of you who haven't, you should find it. I'll tweet it out or something. But, you know, they have like the production cost savings, that's cold, hard cash to consumers on one side of the chart. Then they have reliability benefits. Then they have a few other things. And at the far, far side of the chart, 
they have the carbon benefits. So if you don't care about the carbon benefits, you just cut the chart off. And that was really critical to, I think, driving the consensus around doing that because the non-carbon benefits of these transmission projects more than paid for themselves and reduced cost for customers. And for those of us who actually care about the carbon, hey, look, it's gravy. But I think in today's polarized society, we need to be able to focus on the things that bring us together and do our transmission planning with that in mind. Yeah, those multi-value projects were certainly a big deal. And you're right, we've transitioned to a new acronym because in our energy industry, we can't get enough of those. So that LRTP, Long Range Transmission Planning Process. And you're right, I mean, MISO is an enormous place. For our listeners out there, think about like kind of the entirety of the Mississippi River Delta, literally down from the Great Lakes all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. It's actually the largest integrated market ISO RTO by geography by miles in the country. And it's huge. And what it was getting at there is that, remember when we talked about stacking all these generators up in merit order to get to the place where supply and demand meet and setting power prices that way? Well, if the transmission system is constrained, meaning you can't access those cheapest forms of energy that are out there. And a lot of times things like onshore wind, which are really abundant in the plain states, can be amongst the cheapest. Then you don't get that, right? Because you can think about the commodity, those electrons that are really inexpensive. They're not deliverable to market, right? Because the transmission system won't allow them. So what does a place like MISO do? It selects a more expensive type of generation. And so you really do see that. You see these, they call them production cost savings, being a huge piece of what is driving those types of upgrades. It is a factor that a lot of folks, you know, states and integrated utilities and things consider a lot. I think you keyed on another piece, Abe, that I think is important, and I'd love to get your perspective on. One of the things that has been resonating with me as I've been thinking about sort of the transmission space, because let's be honest, transmission was like the stodgy dark corner of the utility world, right? It was like boring and it was engineers doing complicated stuff with math that like us normal folks didn't have any idea about. It's having its moment in the sun, right? You're seeing like op-eds in the you know Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and things like that. And it's like cool to talk about these days. But I think that one of the things that has been sort of lost or maybe not emphasized enough has been, again, those externalities, right? The jobs, the tax base, the investment and things that comes with this type of stuff, right? These are huge pieces of infrastructure. It takes a lot of folks to build these lines. It takes a lot of equipment. It takes a lot of like boots and yellow colored shirts and all sorts of things. And I feel like that's not something that has gotten enough play. We think about sort of some of the challenges that come with transmission. You know, we don't love the idea of looking at transmission lines, but I think we've underemphasized that economic value, that job creation effect. What are your thoughts there? Do you agree, disagree? What are you thinking, Ed? 100% agree. I think it's got to be part of the message as we take sort of the gospel of transmission to the entire country. Because, you know, as I often say to people, if all we do is convince the blue states on a policy, you know, a clean energy policy, we have locked in failure because we will not beat our clean energy targets. But we have a really good message to sell to people in the red states. And it's not necessarily about carbon. For some of them, that will resonate. It's not necessarily about the co-benefits that you get when you decrease the use of fossil fuels or move to more efficient fossil fuel units. But it is also about American abundance and taking advantage of American natural resources and jobs and all the rest of that as well. And so I think a big part of what we do when we talk about transmission, I think has been a little bit misbranded because for many of us, when we talk about transmission, it's the carbon benefits that are really first and foremost on our minds. But it is absolutely not the sum total of the benefits that people get. And when you sort of explain to folks that actually more transmission means more reliability, 
it increases competition in the generation sector. I mean, when we talk about production cost savings, why are there production costs? Why does more transmission enable production cost savings? Because you've got more generators in a geographic footprint that can compete to sell you electricity. And when they compete, you win. So there's a lot of really good things about new transmission. So, you know, one of my colleagues is looking at what happens if you put additional high voltage direct current transmission ties between the ERCOT portion of Texas and the rest of the country. And you know what? You see enormous cost savings because Texas is then able to sell some of their clean energy outside of Texas. And, you know, what could be more Texan than exporting <laughs> energy and selling it to the rest of the world? That is that is like an American story right there. And I think we need to talk about that. And we need to be clear that even for those of us on the left who really do care deeply about the climate change aspects, it is by no means the sum total of the story. Is this your colleague that testified before Congress recently about this? Different one, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> but she also works on a lot of these. Willis a lot is absolutely wonderful and a true superstar of stage and screen these days and is really a wonderful colleague to have looking at all these clean energy issues. But this happens to be somebody else. This was really interesting because both sides of the aisle were really curious about this, particularly because, you know, we lost lives during winter storm, Yuri. And this is the responsible discussion to be having. Totally, totally agree. And one of the things that you look at when, boy, we really should come back and talk about this paper once it's released, and I'll, I'll hook you guys up with them. But, you know, they looked at both savings in terms of transmitting energy across the border and just sort of the production cost savings, but then also looking at What's the value in reduced expenditures to make the Texas grid reliable in the face of a Storm Uri kind of event? Because to do that without relying on external ties or relying only on the very minimal ties that currently exist requires huge expenditure. And that expenditure can be reduced dramatically if we were to interconnect various regions. And I think we're seeing this discussion play out in real time right now in Washington with the reintroduction of the Big Wires Act. Senator Higginlooper has really been a leader in this, looking at why don't we just mandate a certain level of transfer capability between all of the major planning regions on the electric grid? And that's really exciting because here we have talk about mandating the type of reliability service that I think a lot of scholars look at and say, yeah, this is exactly the type of increased transmission throughput that we need that will have both the carbon benefits, but also the job benefits and the economic benefits, the production cost savings, as well as just making the whole system more reliable. Yeah, that reliability key is really important. And to provide a little bit of context, because I think Abe is keying in on a really important feature here. So winter storm, Yuri, prolonged cold weather event, really, really high demand for electricity in Texas and a lot of generator forced outages. But effectively for political reasons, ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which is an ISORTL like PJM, has remained electrically disconnected from the rest of the United States. And so there's a couple of DC ties, but that's really about it. And so during URI, it's not like they could lean on, say, their neighbors, even in a place like Oklahoma or Louisiana or wherever that's geographically close to them. It's electrically distant the way Hawaii is electrically distant from California. It's, it's very much an island. If you think about during Winter Storm Elliott, lots of other places on the grid, PJM in particular, to the Tennessee Valley Authority, Carolina's utilities and things, had a lot of problems. But in PJM's case, 
New York ISO to the east was doing a lot better from a reliability perspective and was able to push power across that seam. So that transfer capability concept that Abe's talking about is literally being able to have your neighbors help you when you're in a tough spot. And I think it is a real juxtaposition. It illustrates the very serious consequences of a decision to not have that sufficient transfer capability. And the big wires act that Senator Hickenlooper is pushing would effectively require all of these utilities to have a minimum amount of transfer capability. I believe the language in the act right now is 30% of their peak load. So at any given time, they'd be able to transfer up to 30% of their peak load to their neighbors. Their idea being all of these efficiencies Abe's talking about would come with it. But really from a reliability perspective, you could push and pull a lot of power in and out of these zones and kind of be able to maximize that neighborly effect from a reliability perspective. And to your point, Noah, in a very real way, save lives. And this really got lost in the Storm Uri discussions, but Midcontinent ISO had some brutal cold during that time period. And PJM sent them a lot of power as well to keep the lights on and the heat on for customers. And I know there was obviously, and justly so, there was a lot of discussion about what happened in Texas. But I think looking at what happened in MISO is a really good way to compare lessons learned and talk about this basically interregional coordination, being able to help each other, being able to maximize our resources during high stress events on the grid. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, you can't have this conversation without pointing to the increase in extreme weather that I think a lot of us are deeply concerned about. We built a grid with certain design parameters in mind. And one of the primary parameters we use in designing a reliable grid is to look at historic weather patterns and historic usage patterns. And I hate to say it, we're kind of blowing those out of the water. So how do we think about increasing the capability of our large-scale macro grid? And absolutely, one of the best ways you can do that is to increase the geographic footprint over which you're pulling power from. So PJM has extra power, or to take it back to the Storm Elliott days, TVA needed more power, Duke needed more power, PJM pushed them more power. And PJM needed power, and it was coming in from New York and MISO. So yeah, absolutely, relying on being able to reach out and touch your neighbors is a huge, huge reliability safeguard. And I tend to put it in one of these categories of sort of a no regrets approach. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think one of the big things that you touch on is this idea that in the not too distant past, I mean, Noha, when you were at FERC, you were thinking about our one day and 10 year blackout reliability standard. In those days, we viewed these types of winter storms as high impact, but low probability events. Like they were going to be tough, but they were going to happen very infrequently. Maybe once every 10 years, you would get hit by a hurricane or a big winter storm. At least my perspective is as someone who works with clients across the entirety of the continental United States, these different markets and these different utilities are almost thinking about this as they're sort of playing Russian roulette with the weather, where there's going to be a major event like this. And it's really whether it hits New England or it hits Texas, or it hits a place like PJM, they're still high impact, but they're very much no longer these low probability events. They're happening far more frequently. And that's a huge paradigm shift from a reliability perspective. I also think that sort of notion about what we're talking about here and what you're trying to do every day, Abe, is this kind of transformational change. And for all sorts of reasons, our grid is changing very rapidly so that it's going to be a far different 
energy system tomorrow than the one that we had today and certainly than the one that we had yesterday. And one of the topics that I think is increasingly coming into focus is something you touched on at the start of the conversation. If we want to call it energy justice or environmental justice, sort of social justice types of initiatives here. And what's the right role for those types of, I'll call them features or considerations here in our energy landscape And it also feels to me like the timing is right, right? If we're talking about transformational change generally, should we be talking about this now as a feature for that grid of the future? We have to. The electric industry has been at odds with justice for a long time. And this is something we were all very keenly aware of in New Jersey. It's something that we really look at in our work. And it really takes on a number of different facets. One is cost. Are we imposing too high a cost on communities that simply can't afford it? That is one aspect of it our siting of infrastructure. It is no mystery to anybody that dirty industries get sited in poor communities. And that is something that we absolutely need to take ownership of and really look at as we think about building out the next generation of infrastructure. But we also need to look at the job impacts as well. Not only were a lot of these facilities put into lower income communities, often black and brown communities, but they didn't even get the job benefits out of it. As we look forward, and one of the things that really excites me about the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the two main energy pillars of Bidenomics, is this focus on distressed communities. And it can be poor Appalachian communities as energy communities, as well as sort of Justice 40 communities. And, you know, we have to, as an industry, walk the walk when it comes to thinking about and reimagining the electric grid and taking into account exactly these kinds of issues. We need to recognize that when you shut down a coal plant in a rural community, you are not only having people lose a lot of jobs, but they're really good paying jobs too. And often that coal plant was the largest contributor and payer of property taxes in the county. So you really are having a profound impact in reshaping some of these communities as we go through the clean energy transition. And it's not good enough to just say, oh, well, now you retired coal handler can start go climbing wind turbines. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's not a satisfactory answer. And the pay gap, the pay differential between the sort of old economy jobs and the new economy jobs is pretty profound. So we need to, as a society, really devote the resources to making this transition work for folks in that kind of communities, as well as coming into the low-income communities, you know, in a more urban setting and taking really seriously the idea that just because we have put dirty peakers, located dirty peakers in your community for the last 75 years, well, maybe it's time for us to stop that. And maybe we need to sort of prioritize retiring those peakers and replacing them with batteries and solar, which, by the way, I totally recognize is a really nice soundbite, but actually really hard to do in practice. But we need to take that question seriously and really work with our grid engineers and talk about what's feasible. And maybe you can't entirely retire a facility in one of these communities. But, you know, maybe it's the right place to put battery storage so that you reduce the number of run hours of that facility. Maybe we need a strategic climate reserve kind of product where we do pay some resources to sit around for those extreme weather events so we can maintain reliability, but also really improve the environmental characteristics of communities. And we need to take some serious discussion of hyper-local public health impacts. Like if you have a key piece of infrastructure in a community and it's really difficult to retire that piece of infrastructure for some reason, what else can we do? What happens if we came in and electrified the bus fleet? What happens if we came in and made a lot of energy efficiency improvements? 
are there really creative ways to come together with community benefit agreements that work for folks? And I got to tell you, this is a massively understudied area for the importance and the impact that these issues have on people's lives. Professor Diana Hernandez, who's one of my colleagues at Columbia, has done really great work on energy poverty and looking at how electric bills and gas bills really affect people's lives. There's some work out of California, uh, Meredith Fowley, who's looking at, can we do new kinds of rate design that are more income sensitive? How do we think about taking energy assistance programs and actually getting people to apply? One of the things we saw in New Jersey during the pandemic is we had hundreds of millions of dollars of outstanding collectibles for energy bills, mostly electric, though some gas and some water. And yet our energy assistance programs were not being tapped by the vast majority of those people. So we had, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars of energy assistance funds ready to hand out, but no applicants. So why? <laughs> and I think the answer to that question is really complicated. It gets into psychology and, you know, how much time does somebody have when they're working three jobs to come in and apply for energy assistance? You often talk to these folks and they think somebody else needs it more. So how do we be smarter about the way that we deliver this? I mean, you have Facebook who can come in and micro-target every single person and knows what our demographic information is and what we like and what we do. So let's keep our utilities from being totally creepy. But how can we take some of those principles and be smart about applying energy assistance so that you're not making people come in and prove that they're poor? You're identifying them and perhaps by census tract and providing the appropriate level of energy assistance. I think those are all great ideas. I'm really glad that you guys have folks that are doing deep work in this space, because I think if the academic institutions don't do it, I frankly don't know who else will do it. And provide, like you said earlier, right, like that kind of honest broker in the room type of feature. One of the barriers to entry is frankly trust, right? Like I don't understand this stuff. Energy is a big, complicated space that I don't know a lot about. I don't want to make a bad decision, so I'm not necessarily going to do anything or respond, right? And look, it's an intimidating place, right? It's got big words, it's got numbers, it's got payments and things that are associated with it. And having somebody to sort of be a straight shooter and be able to provide sort of an honest and simple articulation of what those opportunities are, I think is really important and can go a really long way to reducing some of those barriers to assistance. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things we're really trying to do, make a pillar of our program, is state regulator capacity building. How do we actually provide research and insights and direct training or even people to the implementers of clean energy policy at the state level? Because, you know, we don't have a federal energy policy for the most part. So when you think about the IRA or the path to a clean energy transition, it really goes through 50 state capitals. And so many of those people are doing the best they can with very limited resources. So how can we, as an educational institution like Columbia, pretty good one, how can we prepare our students and place them in these places? How can we provide direct, tangible assistance to regulators, talk about what's best practices? I often found when I was in government that there were more interesting webinars or podcasts like this one in a given day than I could possibly ever listen to. And so, you know, the challenge of doing really high quality scholarship and, you know, putting out that white paper, but that's not enough, right? You then got to take that white paper and distill the results and take it directly to the people who are in the position of implementing it. And that's a real challenge for academics across the board. And it's one that I think we're really trying to tackle head on at the Center of Global Energy Policy. Abe, I have this struggle all the time and not just educating folks that are at different government levels or providing them the information, but the general public. 
And I think people are not as interested in this stuff as they should be. And I know I'm a little bit of a super geek, but I listen to the SmartList app all the time and Mike's going to laugh, but I always say, like, why aren't as many people listening to our podcast as they're listening to SmartList? Because we're talking about actually keeping their lights on, keeping their heat on. Like that's so much more important than what Will Ferrell did last weekend. But people really care about what Will Ferrell did last weekend. <laughs> We need to take that energy and channel it, right? That's right. That's exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's going to be us. We're going to be the between two ferns of energy <laughs> podcast here. Don't worry. We're well on our way, right? I love it. So as we're wrapping here, one question we really like to ask folks is, if you could wave your magic wand and change anything, what would it be to get us to a better place in this energy transition? Oh, that is a great question. So which magic wand, which lever would I want to pull here? I'm going to give a bit of a pandering answer, which I know you all will love, but I would really emphasize the importance of competitive markets because I often say the environment doesn't care whether we're producing a megawatt of solar power or a megawatt of wind power or a megawatt of nuclear power. What it cares about is the fact that we have put out power that's non-carbon emitting. And so as we think about taking scarce resources particularly scarce ratepayer dollars, which are really precious. You know, and any regulator will tell you that. How do we get the most bang for our investment? And I think the best way to do that is to look out there at the full suite of resources, identify the attributes that we need. Because right now our markets are designed to identify the lowest cost reliable solution to meeting our total energy demand. But that's not the question that society wants markets to answer right now. We wanted the, the lowest cost solution that maintains reliability and meets state public policies. And that's a different answer. So how do we take the very American experience of 200 plus years of capitalism in the good sense of capitalism, you know, in the driving of competitive markets? And how do we apply those principles to the clean energy transition so that we can do it faster and cheaper and really kind of get the results that we all need? How do we design those markets? So if I had the magic wand, I think I would really tell regulators and advocates that getting markets right and getting markets to ask the right question is really fundamental to getting to doing this. I know that's a hugely controversial point with the two of you. Yeah, I was just going to say, you were right. I love yeah, that right, answer. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, look, on scale, right? I mean, for me, I think that a lot of the things that we talked about that don't feel like they're related to markets, like some of those social justice and environmental justice or energy justice types of initiatives, right? Like you focused on it in the right way, Abe, is that if you can't pay your power bill, it doesn't matter why, right? Whether you feel like you're doing the right thing, that's just not going to be a feasible outcome. And I think that there is just ample empirical evidence from every one of these jurisdictions that these are very, very efficient ways to try and get the lowest cost outcome that you want. And there's no reason to believe that you can't also leverage them to do other things for you too. It takes some creative thinking and it takes some time to figure out how to get that balance right so that you can solve for those constraints. But I think that at the end of the day, when we look at the ways that you're going to begin to enable or unlock pathways to achieve those other initiatives, that type of competition becomes huge. I also think about the risk shift. I mean, investors will put profound amounts of money at risk here on a belief that those markets are gonna pay out a return on that investment. And if they don't, for some reason, that's on them, right? And you don't end up in a scenario like with 
Vogel, where you have ratepayers paying for a wildly overcost asset, investors do. And those are things that like start to sound way more like commercial considerations than social and environmental considerations. But I don't think so. I think you can leverage those to create that pathway to success. And I really appreciate your view on the way that we can balance those considerations in a way that ultimately takes us to sort of the best outcome that we want, which is, I think we can all agree where we want to get at the end of the day. Regulators have to regulate, right? And I actually firmly do believe that because I do believe in markets, but it's markets informed then by politics and political considerations as well. So you can't just put out a total free-for-all out there and our markets aren't, right? When we talk about markets, they're always they're always highly regulated. When you're talking about the U.S. stock exchange or our energy markets, it doesn't matter. And that's fine. That's not inconsistent with competition. So then where we see a market failure, where the low-income impacts aren't being reflected or environmental justice considerations aren't being affected, then you need to step in as a regulator and say, yep, we're going to use the markets where applicable, but then we're also going to make some of these policy-informed decisions as well. And it's the combination of those two things, I think, gets us to the sweet spot. I agree. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. And, and I can't wait for our listeners to listen to this podcast. Oh, my pleasure. It feels like dinner, you know, where we can just sit around <laughs> and chat about this stuff, which is always so much fun. So it's great to see you both. Thanks, Abe. Thank you. Good to see you too. You've been listening to No Power, hosted by Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti. Head on over to nopowershow.com. That's K-N-O-W, where you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next time on No Power.